And the underlying idea that it is a healthy mom leads to a healthy baby. And again, depression and anxiety carry very real physical risks to the pregnancy, to the baby. It's not a risk-free decision. Start early, screen them, treat them. And if you're not sure, call us, we'll help. My name is Saira Kalia. I am the director for the Arizona Perinatal Psychiatry Access Line. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry, and by training, I'm a psychiatrist, specifically a reproductive psychiatrist, and I have been in healthcare 21 years if you're starting from med school. My name is Katherine Emmerich. I am a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at University of Arizona in Banner Health. I'm a perinatal psychiatrist, and I'm the co-director of APAL. And I've been in medicine since 2015, eight years. <laughs> He's not counting med school. No, I, oh, wait, no, I'm not counting med school. If oh, I counted med school, school, then since 2011. Yeah. So when I was a resident, Dr. Kalia was um, one of our program directors, and I was chosen to be one of the first residents mm-hmm. to go through the perinatal psychiatry track in residency. Uh, which I was really excited about because I've always been interested in women's mental health. Um, That's a lot of the population that we see. And then my interest has only really deepened over the years, um, working in an OB clinic, doing uh, perinatal psychiatry, and then also becoming a mom to now two kids certainly has really brought that experience a lot closer to home. Um, So the Arizona Perinatal Psychiatry Access Line, um, just as a sort of a brief overview, is a program that is available to um, physicians, providers, anyone who is caring for the perinatal population. It has kind of three arms. Um, One is that we are a phone line that we're currently will be open 830 to 430 Monday through Friday. And that's a line where any provider can call and we can they'll be directly connected with uh, Dr. Kalia or myself and we can help answer questions, um, help walk them through how to care for the perinatal patient that they have in front of them in terms of mental health and substance use concerns. Uh, The other arm is we have a website, apal.arizona.edu. And that has resources for providers like treatment algorithms, screening questionnaires, where they can get um, national training, local training, and then also resources for uh, patients and families in terms of finding local resources um, and workbooks and resources for um, patients that are struggling for family members. And then our third arm is training. So we also provide free trainings um, to any provider, group of providers in Arizona on a number of different prenatal topics. Um, you can find our topic list on our website and request trainings there. Uh, but we also have a box called other on the training list because we recognize that providers understand their patient population the best. And we may not have listed what your particular group needs. And we're very open to creating a training that is really going to meet um, the needs of your patient population. So the service is free. We're grant funded. I don't get paid more if you know you call more like so please call more um and so and the other thing is it's it's really truly equitable right like it doesn't matter if your patient has insurance because we're not going to bill your patient's insurance and part of what drove this is you know i was associate training director for the residency program in university of arizona tucson for six years and we started the perinatal psychiatry training track and i was like we'll create more psychiatrists and we will train more people and we will take care of this burden for arizona And, you know, that's just not going to happen. Arizona has 918 psychiatrists 
for the entire state. Like it's just, and when I go into like who takes insurance and who takes access and who's reproductive psych trained, like that number becomes smaller and smaller. And then when I look at who is where, Maricopa or Pima County, that's where they are. And so that's not where all the birthing persons in our state are. And so the idea was how do we take a limited bandwidth and kind of just because you don't have enough providers does not mean you can't have enough care. And that was kind of the mission is how do we take the limited bandwidth we have and spread it across the state because women don't get diagnosed um, or if they get diagnosed, they don't get treatment. And a lot of mental health is provided by frontline providers. It's primary care docs, it's OBGYNs. They are the ones providing the, that uh, care and they sometimes don't feel like they have the background or the training. So how can we empower those folks that are already doing the work and are at the front lines and doing it? And how do we, how do we support them? And that's kind of the idea is you call us, we will walk you through your case and help you figure out how to do it. And if you want, we'll come train your, your docs and your team. And, and I think it's a multi-layered problem and we're only part of the solution, but I'm hoping that we can be a strong part of that solution. When you look at maternal health, right? Like when you look at sort of the buzzwords, U.S. maternal mortality is rising, you know, all those things. And it is U.S. maternal mortality is like 23.8 per 100,000 live births, which is higher than, for example, Iran. Arizona is at 20.3. So we're still, a, we're a little lower than national average. And these statistics are so scary, not just because when you compare us to industrialized nations, we're higher, like all industrialized nations are at single digits, so like seven or eight. But also compared to ourselves, we are higher. Like in 1987, the U.S.'s maternal mortality rate was 7.2. So we've gone up significantly since then. The one thing that kind of bugs me is that sometimes we only talk about death. Like more the mortality ratios, we also need to talk about the severe morbidity. And morbidity ratios are also increasing in the U.S. as well. So there's been like a 200% increase in severe maternal morbidity in the U.S. since like 1993. And that's the same case with Arizona, right? Arizona has also gone up with maternal morbidity. The problem when it comes to Arizona is Arizona is kind of unique as a state, right? Um, Arizona has, uh, when you look at it, at the birth ratios, 41% of Arizona's births are Latina women, 6% are American Indian women, and 6% are Black women, right? So that adds up to more than half, which makes us a majority minority state. And that's something to keep in mind when you're going to be thinking about state-specific targeted strategies, because you then have to think about it that way. Our state also has a very unique geographic location because we're a frontier state. We're home to 22 federally recognized tribes, and we have a combination of really vast rural areas and some of the fastest growing urban areas. So we have a lot of like um, very big dyads and opposites compared when it comes to the state. And that is a big factor, because if you're going to say um, over 50% of our births are technically minority women, that's a huge issue, because when you're going to talk about minority women data, minority women data is more scary, right? There, uh, There's higher complexity, there's higher morbidity and mortality in terms of that uh, population. So that's also why we need more targeted interventions that somebody than another state that would not have similar sort of um, geographical diversity as well as racial and ethnic diversity that Arizona has. So this is not going to get ranty. <laughs> it's, a very annoying, it's a very annoying thing to see that maternal mortality increase, right? Like maternal deaths across the U.S. are what doubled over the few decades and stuff. And there are some criti cr critiques of this. And some people are like, oh, we're just reporting deaths more. 
I disagree with that on a fundamental level. And there's some data to back that that's not the only reason why we're seeing the deaths increase. But there's a few technical reasons, right? Women are older and heavier um, when they're becoming pregnant in the US now. So the median age of mothers giving birth when 1990 was 27. In, in 2019, it's become 30. And so then, you know, a lot of women can have very healthy pregnancies after 35, but the risk of dying in pregnancy increases with age. So under 25, your risk is 20.4 women die per 100,000. And then when you become 40 and older, that becomes 138.5 per 100,000 births. So that like one technical reason. Lack of health insurance is another big one. So there's a multiple women that are not covered by health insurance in the US in their reproductive age group. And that's a big deal because then you're not identifying these issues and you're not reporting this. So it's, there's doesn't matter if you have technological advances, if you don't have a provider insurance and you have no access to care. So that becomes a huge issue as well. And like we said, um, rural versus urban, that's a big, big issue. Arizona's what three quarters of Arizona's 15 counties are rural. When it comes to rural residents, healthcare short workforce shortage, hospital closures, longer drive times, social determinants of health, and you know, all of those considerations come into play. So I think all of those factors are a big play in terms of people getting care. And I would underscore that insurance piece and lack of coverage more than anything else. And I would just to add to the insurance piece, I think it's not just a lack of insurance, it's people being underinsured. So having access to insurance, but the cost yeah. of using the insurance and the access to care is still really limited, even if people do mm -hmm. carry health insurance. Absolutely. Um, actually, I was just talking to my sister-in-law about this. I was going to mention it to you, Catherine. Um, so my younger brother, I was telling them, I was like, go get allergy shots for your kids because you're clearly they're allergic to the world like the outside world. And they were like, well, our deductible is $10,000. It's it's the end of October. They have not met their $10,000 deductible. And to get allergy shots, you know, it's another two grand. And yes, they have good jobs and all of that, but that's a lot of money. And if that's going to be two grand per kid to get allergy shots, and that's only going to be two grand for the rest of these three months. And then that deductible resets, you know, that becomes like a, like, that's a huge factor. So I'm glad, thanks for bringing that up. And then another, another thing that I would bring up is also the substance use piece, particularly yeah. for Arizona, I think is a big driver. And then the lack of access to care for substance use treatment. When you look at pregnancy associated deaths due to overdose, they've doubled in the U.S. from 20, 2007 to 2016. So that's doubled. When you look at data from the PRAM system, which is the Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, they have found that there's increase in people being prescribed opiates. Maternal opiate use at delivery has increased four times since 1999 to 2014. Inpatient treatment for women with methamphetamine use abuse has increased three times since 1996. Marijuana use has doubled. So when you're looking at like kind of like the use patterns, that's increased significantly across the U.S. as well. And when you look at the use pattern increasing with that also becomes more complex use, right? People aren't using just one substance. They're using multiple substances. And so almost half of all pregnancy associated deaths in Arizona were related to mental health use, mental health conditions or substance use disorders. And I think it was what, 98 percent, Catherine, that were considered preventable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it the the rates are skyrocketing. And it's actually not just mental health condition, like suicide rates in the US also are increasing. 
So just across the board, mental health conditions have been a bit of a challenge. And can I, and I'll try not to get ranty about this, but I want to go back to the reason for the increasing mortality rates, not just out related to substance use and not just related to sort of access to care, but also just the landscape that moms are facing now is really different than it used to be. I mean, I think a really good example is, you know, women have historically worked the second shift, you know, after they get home from work, they're busy taking care of their kids, they're getting dinner, they're doing all these things. But with the advent of new technologies, people are also expected to be available to work. Mm-hmm. you know, 24 seven, which is maybe something that's more possible to do if you aren't going home and you have a full second job of taking care of a family. But when you do that amount of stress is can be really untenable. And then, you know, we saw this also during the pandemic where women were making these really difficult choices of trying to stay in the workforce, leaving their career, losing all of those opportunities because the schools were closed and someone had to stay home with the kids. And the person who was overwhelmingly staying home with the kids were the moms. And then I'm I'm not even talking about social media and the impact of that and sort of getting access to everyone's perfect lives and the way that mom should be and should feel and their family should look. But there's yeah. certainly lots of different changes that have occurred over the past couple of decades that has increased the stress levels that parents are facing, particularly moms. Yeah. I mean, my kid's school email is a full-time job. Like the amount of email from school about like, we need this paper and have you reviewed this and make sure she wears orange today. It's a full-time job just looking through. And I just have two kids. I don't know how people do it who have more kids. Like, But like, it's harder to live in the US, honestly. Like there's more bureaucracy just to go through and figure out the cost of healthcare is not simple. The hoops you have to jump through in terms of like, um, what is my deductible? What is my copay? What is covered? What is not? Is this the is this the hospital that I can go to get treatment at or not? Should I do I need to shop around for my care? Like there's no there's not that much transparency about accessing healthcare and implications of it and the stigma is there. And again, the burden on on parents, on moms, on birthing persons, on primary parent or on people who are the primary parent, there's a lot. Like it's not easy living. And we all need wives. An extra stay-at-home person, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to make every every household function. And, and I think when it comes to motherhood, like you come up against everything that is a challenge in the US, right? You get pregnant, then you're pushed up against, do I want to be pregnant? Or is that of a choice I have, right? That's the first issue. Then you say you decide to stay pregnant and you exercise that choice to continue pregnancy. Then you're head up against healthcare. What is the cost? What can I deliver? Am I rural? Am I urban? All of that hell, including all the way up to delivery. And and depending on what your background is and whether, you know, you are of a certain race that maybe doesn't get adequate pain control, like all of those health issues and fears and challenges with regards to the cost of having a baby and delivering. Say you have the baby, then the issue is, do I go back to work? Is maternity leave covered? Is paid? Is there paid family leave for me? If not, how soon do I have to go back, drag my, you know, recovering body back to work? And then say you do want to drag your recovering body back to work. Childcare is expensive, ridiculously so. And then you're butting up against that. Say you're blessed and you're able to stay home and you don't, you can stay home for a little bit of time. And then you're putting your kids through school later, but then school is becoming scary. So like motherhood and that experience just pushes you against all issues in our society 
in a very, very real way. And those are, there's no time allocated to moms to process that. Like we don't have time for that. You, you function, you survive, you take care of everybody. And, and everybody is like a very lovely, large, <laughs> excellent, like circle. That means your neighbor. That means be a good, like all of that, like the expectations of being good for everybody around you. Um, and so motherhood becomes a really tough thing in the U.S., and in a time, I think, where we all live much farther away from our families of origin, where the community that we have is not the same in terms of support, while we have increased mm-hmm. amount of stressors and demands on our time. Mm-hmm. And then I think just going back to social media for a second, also, I think it can be even harder to find that sort of authentic community because there's so much pressure about how you should look that it can be really hard for moms to show up genuinely and say like, I'm struggling with this. This is really hard when they, what they feel like they're seeing is that no one else is struggling with that and no one else is having those problems and everyone else sort of has it together. It can be really hard. Even if you find some group that you can be a part of and belong to, it can be really hard to show up authentically. Yeah. And again, building a community, like, um, there was this very famous case, at, and that's it's a worldwide case that's going on about a, fam, a PCP, uh, primary care physician. I think she was in South Africa. I might be getting the details wrong. And um, she was struggling with depression, went off her meds, moved to a new country, and long story short, and short ended up murdering her children. And it was a whole discussion on maternal mental health and associations with suicide. And, and one of the things that really stuck out to me is the amount of isolation she must have been under. Right. Like moving to a new country in the middle of COVID with three children and trying to establish a system and a community that is not easy. And that is that happens a lot. A lot of people live very transitional lives and, you know, are and that becomes another piece to keep in mind. And it goes back, I think, to thinking about sort of people who are underserved in general, like um, who is more likely to kind of be to have jobs that they get fired from or have. Um, lower paying positions or have to have have to move multiple times. So I think we have to think about all those drivers. And as physicians also, you have to remember like all of these things are huge stressors. Transitions are part of life, but also very stressful parts of life. Yeah. And I think like it's it's bigger than just moms, right? We need, we need to think about behavioral health services in schools for students that are experiencing depression, other mental health concerns, education around this, general education to the public about like signs that are that are going to be part of this because what happens and I've heard from patients is I saw a TikTok and that person was talking about anxiety and that's not what I feel. So that's, I don't have anxiety. Um, and you know, like that's, we need more reputable sources to the public talking about what this is because the reality is we are seeing quite a bit of morbidity and mortality from it. And it's, and, and I think a lot of the times I just come back to that Arizona number, but the Arizona Department of Healthcare Health Services put out a report and their 2016, 2018 numbers were there. And they were like 98% of deaths in Arizona due to mental health conditions or substance use disorders were preventable. Like that, I, I keep going back to that 98%. That's horrific. When you think about it, those are moms like that. A loss of a mom is is a really, really big deal to society, to the child, to the family, to society in general. Um, and then, of course, women of color obviously have a disproportionate, disproportionate burden of that number as well. And the, the deaths are preventable, but the suffering 
the yeah. widespread suffering that occurs is also preventable and treatable. Yeah. I think there's also like this level of like, it's not going to work. What's the point? I tried a med before. Right. Or it's better for my baby if I don't take a medication when I'm suffering. Yeah, no. That one. When is really, it- we know that, yes, there are risks to any medication that you take. There's a risk to anything that you ingest while you're pregnant. But it certainly is not better for your baby for you to white knuckle your way through pregnancy while you're depressed, while you're anxious, while you're dealing with a mental health issue, because they're very real impacts to that baby by being exposed to the depression and the anxiety. And that's something I could talk for quite a while about. Yeah, will it hurt my baby is the first question. And, and if I could be truly blunt, I'd say depression, your depression, your anxiety will hurt your baby. Um, And again, depression and anxiety carry very real physical risks to the pregnancy, to the baby, attachment issues, mental health consequences, preeclampsia, NICU admissions, higher rates of preterm birth. Like I'm, we can rant on and on about that. It's not a risk-free decision. And that's the other pieces. Start early, screen them, treat them. And if you're not sure what to do with regards to treat them, treating them, call us, we'll help. Please, please call with any questions. There's no question that we're going to not want to answer or not want to talk about. This is what Dr. Kali and I talk about with each other all the time. It's what we love talking about. So please, please call us with any question. We're more than happy to talk. Yeah. And it's beyond case consultation. So if you feel like we can do trainings for you, that would be great. And again, um, there've been models across different countries that have kind of implemented this and we're the 20th line in the U S other lines have been around for about 10 years. So we're coming up on sort of the 10 year anniversary of the first line. And they've put out data that this kind of stuff works. So people who have called repeatedly, so frontline providers who have repeatedly or consecutively called are, were able to say that their confidence in treating higher, more severe mental illness improved. And that's kind of the goal, right? Like we can't cover the state of Arizona with our 918 psychiatrists, but we can with kind of empowering that frontline. And again, it's hard work being that frontline. I cannot even imagine being a frontline healthcare provider in a rural county uh, in Arizona. It's hard work. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of lives on you. And if it is something like you guys aren't open at the times, leave us a voicemail and tell us what time to call you and we will call you. Just before you jump in, I want to, I just want to mention that this has been a dream of Dr. Kali and I's for years. I remember probably three or four years ago, Dr. Kali came to me with this idea of a perinatal psychiatry access line. And I thought that sounds like a really great idea, but I have no idea how we're going to get funding and actually pull this off. And so I'm just so honored to be working with Dr. Kali and I'm so impressed with how endlessly energetic she has been that has helped us get to this point where this is a reality.